0: I'm going to begin in John chapter 1, beginning of uh, verse 1. I'm just going to just kind of roll through this passage. I could spend, shoot, like probably 13 weeks just in two verses. So I I promise I'm not going to get technical. Maybe a little bit nerdy, a little technical on you today. Not that much, but I want to get into this. But I think if you read John 1, you need a big intro to this. Maybe a little Led Zeppelin, do it, right? Little cashmere, get this this is this is this is huge. So John chapter one, beginning in verse one, John tells us in the beginning, everyone say in the beginning. In the beginning, in the beginning was the what? Word. Was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This scandalizes our Western cynicism. So you're saying Jesus is God. Don't roll your eyes if you don't believe this. Just go with us here. Verse two says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, right? Don't you think you need a little Led Zeppelin? No? Am I talking to the wrong crowd? ACDC? I grew up in the late 70s and 80s. I don't even, anyway, I don't even know, right? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can I get an amen, church? Or to skip down to the, some of the climactic um, like, moment in John's prologue, verse 14, we're gonna, read first, uh, we're gonna read four verses here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, everyone say full, full of grace and truth. John bore witness, verse 15, about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, everyone say grace and truth. Come on, everyone say grace and truth. Grace. grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He, this is the climactic, uh, like layered uh, part of John's prologue. He has made him known. Verse 29, I believe, we're just going to skip down. If you're reading scripture repetition, if you want to get the clue to the intent or meeting Of what you're reading repetition is a way of figuring out okay what this particular author wants us to think about and we have this kind of this repetition that kind of flows out of what we just read uh prior in uh the first verses of john verse 29 says the next day he saw jesus that is john the baptist coming toward him and said behold everyone say behold What does behold mean? Behold means, like, stop what you're doing and check this out. Or stop what you're doing and see. Everyone say see. See. Behold is a big word, right? You stop, you get out of the traffic, and you take a long look at what's going on. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Skip down to verse 34. Five, I believe it is the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and again he said behold the Lamb of God behold the Lamb of God Amen church Amen. could you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray Father I thank you that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world I ask that over the next two weeks that you would help us to figure out what does it mean to be people that follow you. Lord, I thank you for giving us a responsibility of love in an age of contempt, and I just ask that you would teach us to love. You would teach us to give our lives away in an age defined by therapeutic narcissism. Holy Spirit, you would come and you would set us free to truly be who you've called us to be in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. One more time, give your neighbor a high five. Just, man, tell them that you're so glad you made it. So the last last, uh, nine months... Uh, just because of everything that I've had to go through, um, my wife and I, we've been on a health kick. If you don't, my, if you don't know anything about my wife, she's always been um, a health nut, right? I think there's a spectrum to health nuts, right? She's always been on the, the nutty side. Anyways, uh, I love her. She's, she's amazing. Um, but we made a decision we got to go on this health kick just because of everything that's going on. I want to live a long life. How many of you want to live a long life? I don't know if you know this, but my great aunt is 107 years old. Lord have mercy, that's good genes. My grandmother's 100, my other grandmother's 94. Lord, I receive that, right? So we just decided, we, want, we wanted to live healthy. How many of you want to live healthy? Right? So uh, we decided to go on this health kick, uh, but I gave my wife, it was, it was implicit, we actually didn't have this conversation, but basically we have one rule. Our one rule is we will never go on this health kick full hippie. Can I get an Amen never go full hippie, right? Why? Well, because you get Kevin Bacon. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You look it up. You look it up. So we decided to go half hippie, okay? So um, some of you were around me today, and you're like, oh my God, that dude smells like a vitamin shop. Yep, I'm half hippie, right? Um, I drink my backyard every day. We call it a smoothie. Was that, was that kind of funny? No? Was that a dumb preacher Joe? Got a few. Okay. So, yeah, we've been on this health kick, and um, it's, we've learned a lot, and I just basically, I just listen to my wife, and she just gives me all this Ayurvedic stuff, and I don't even know what Ayurvedic even means, that she just gives it to me, and and I get weird feelings, and we have to go off that and put, on, put me on another supplement. Anyways, it's been it's been a journey, people. It's been a journey. Um, but one thing we both agreed on, right, is that we needed to get a water purifier. Everyone say a water purifier. So we got a water purifier, and I had a revelation about a water purifier as it relates to what kind of people God's called us to be, okay? And let me just say this, if, if, and I, I prayed this, but if you want a title and you're taking notes, the title of my message today is, uh, We Are Called... Um, or we're give, we have been given the responsibility to love in an age of contempt. We've been given the responsibility to love in an age of contempt. And I believe the water purifier, and over the months of using it, I just got a revelation. Man, the water purifier is a picture of what our community is called to be. Now, here's the thing. It's important to note that a, a water purifier is not a conduit. Everyone say a conduit. I'm probably going to totally mess this up if you're an electrician or whatever, but just pretend that the ding-dong up here knows what he's talking about. Uh, a conduit, as I know it, as I understand it, allows everything to pass through it, right? A water purifier, on the other hand, as I've seen it in action, as I understand it, uh, takes in water, which is full of toxins, which my wife tells me. And she'll, she'll give you all the list of all the pesticides in her own water, right? takes in the water full of toxins, dirt, and impurities, and then holds, everyone say holds, and holds the toxins and dirt, or absorbs the toxins and dirt and impurities. And what does it do? It gives back not bad water, but it gives back pure, fresh water. That is a picture of self-giving love. Now hold that in your mind, because in about 15 minutes, I'm going to explain that. I'm going to tie that to our Johannine text that we just read. Hold that picture in your mind, because that's a picture of how we are to be in the world. You and I are called by Jesus himself to be water purifiers. Hold that in your mind. The second um, illustration that I want to give you uh, is when I was a young man, I I was a rancher. I ranched for a living. One summer for a week, <laughs> when I was twelve. <laughs> oh man! Anyways, my grandfather he would he he would just like tell me kind of land. He had how, mom, how many acres did Grandpa John have? Tens and tens and tens of thousands of acres and or whatever, like whatever, just thousands, millions, right? <laughs> he was the man. And so uh, we had cattle and, you know, and I, and I would just follow my grandfather around. He, he gave me one warning. He said, this is the, the one thing you cannot do. You cannot touch the electric fence. And I didn't believe him. And I don't know, like, kids, like, you know, your prefrontal cortex d- or, uh, doesn't fully develop until you're 25. Mine clearly was not fully developed. And I, and I just, one day, it was like, you know what? I don't believe the adults, I think they're lying to me. So I went over to this electric fence, and uh, as God is my witness, I'm not even telling you a lie, I do not remember what happened. <laughs> I promise you, I, I don't know the end of the story. I could have been in the hospital for a couple months. I don't think that was what happened. I just have a a block of time that I do not remember. And I came quickly to the conclusion that I should not Touch electric fences. What's an electric fence? An electric fence is a conduit, right? Everything again. Just if, if you're an electrician, please forgive me. A conduit allows this this current to pass through it, and everyone who touches it, wow. right, gets hurt, wow. gets harmed. I just want to make an argument. That's a picture of where our culture's wow. at. So we have two competing pictures. We got one of a purifier, and I'm going to tie that into Jesus and who Jesus is and who we're called to be as a community. And then we're living in a culture of contempt, and I'm going to really go after this next week, that is more like a conduit that just allows all these toxins and all these destructive attitudes to pass through it, and it is destroying the social fabric of our union. So hold those two thoughts in mind, and in three hours, we'll get back to it. But now I want to get back to community, because we are called to build community around, and I've been saying this, around being a water purifier and not a conduit. So let me just explain this really quick. Anthropologists suggest that most civilizations, through rituals and symbols, create community by what they stand against. They, in other words, they, they build or create community around or they structure community around by their opposite. Wow. In other words, we call this scapegoating. Yeah. You can see how this has, has played itself played itself out yeah. recently. Uh, in other words, we build community by what we hate and then we project all our scorn and all our wrath on whatever or whomever it is that we hate or assume is qualitatively different yeah, than us. Yeah, right, right. Wow. Wow. Those Dems, right. those Republicans, right. those libertarians. Right. I'm go, I'm offended, everybody in this room. Those Marxists, those hyper capitalists, those 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 those. Those. And here's the thing, anthropologists. Are are pretty clear that most civilizations organize community around what they are against. As followers of Jesus, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, we're called to do the opposite. One scholar suggests that this building community around what we're against is not an abstract concept at all. Check your social media out. Go on to Twitter. We just need fight club, right? Let's just get it, let's just get it done, people. Let's just everybody go in the streets and let's just fight it out and let's be friends again. All right, We are living in an age of contempt. We are living in an age of shaming. We're living in an age of censorship. We no longer know how to have a discourse about things that we disagree about. Without condemning someone. In fact, I've talked to many of you here today. And many of my friends in ministry have told me that they have lost lifelong relationships over politics this year. And I'm not going to give in to it because you're going you're to send emails to me. If you want to send an email to me because you don't like this message, send it to joelking at, at myspace.com. All right. This happens all the time. In fact, the anthropological function of gossip, which is another way of calling scapegoating, is is, is to build a sense of of community by taking one's anger and tension and ridicule and what's wrong with this world, which is not far down the road from what's wrong with me. I think we divorce the two, what's wrong with the world. We divorce it from what 's wrong with me, and I think they 're way more connected than we want to admit. Can I get an amen somebody? So we, we take what 's wrong and the ruin in us, the anger in us, the loathing in us, and we project it on someone else it 's funny, I, as, as I 've mentioned before, I have seven, my wife and I have seven children, we have three sets of twins, and we are fully done, okay. <laughs> My wife mentioned it, she, the, the most powerful statement she made last week is, we do not touch each other, and that is the truth. This is how we touch, can you grab my hand, and we walk like this. No huggy huggy, no kissy kissy, because we all know what that leads to. But my two older sons, I'm not going to tell you who, I love them to death, we call them our sons of thunder. One of them, I'm not going to name him, came down the stairs a couple weeks ago, and uh, I didn't witness this. I think it was my wife who told me this, and uh, there's no word of a lie of, of this. He came down the stairs with his new white football pants, and he looks at my wife, and he says, what baby? We have four babies under the age of two. He goes, what baby went to the bathroom in my white pants? No. It's funny. Like, I think we need to go to every lexicographer and expunge the word unprecedented. How many of you agree with that? We have been through a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, right? I've talked about this before, last or a couple months ago, or whenever I spoke last. I don't even know when I spoke last, right? Uh, we've, we've been through so much through social division and social unrest, which, the likes of which we have never seen, right? I don't know if you know, but in July of last year, an asteroid almost hit us. Uh, the news is smuggling UFOs. I mean, nothing is unprecedented anymore, right? So let's just expunge that from our dictionary, okay? Except for this. I find it highly unprecedented that my two-year-old that can't even talk, can't even put on his own clothes, would actually go up the stairs, put on white pants, go to the bathroom in it, take it off, put back his diaper on, walk down the stairs, and watch blippy. No, 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 no. Let's apply, Scott, Occam's razor, right? The simplest explanation is usually the best explanation, right? It wasn't the little boys that went to the bathroom in the pants. It was the bigger boy that went to the bathroom in his pants. But you know the funniest thing? This is what I love my wife. She's so compassionate. This is what she said. and actually overheard this part of the conversation with my son she goes. It happens to all of us, baby. <laughs> and I'm like, No, it, no, it not, no, no, it doesn't. That's my son, right? That's the mechanism of scapegoating. He's, he's trying to deal with the tension. He doesn't know how to deal with what's on his pants. He doesn't know how to take responsibility, so he projects it onto his um, little little baby bro, <laughs> bros, and sister. If we're not careful, if we're not careful. We can do the same thing, yeah. right? We can build not only community around what we're against rather than what we're for. Uh, we can build community around the act of scapegoating, and this is this is not new, guys. Yeah, this goes right. all the way back to Adam and Eve. Right. Blame shifting, not taking responsibility, right? Adam and Eve touched the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that, Chris? Well, they basically made a decision when they ate of the fruit, when God told them not to, they made a decision to define reality on their own terms. They made a decision to define what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is ugly, based on their own definition. That is the heart of evil. It's when humans forget that they're creaturely. And they take on this God complex and they start to make decisions about reality that go in contradistinction with what God has or how God has designed reality to be. Are you with me? In fact, some of you, and I get this from one pastor, but some of you perhaps, and there's no judgment, perhaps have chosen this church because of what it's not rather than what it's for. No judgment. I'm glad you're here and I hope hope you're not I hope you like this church, right? But some of you are here because, yeah, I'm so glad they're not too Pentecostal. Or maybe some of you are like, I'm so glad they're not like that Reformed church and they're so fatalistic and they really are into meticulous sovereignty and, you know, they just like, ah, I just don't, you know, I'm so glad that they're not a weird church, right? So many times uh, because of our therapeutic age and because we curate our own spirituality, we base we base going to church on our own preferences, and most of those preferences are rooted in, well, I'm just glad that church isn't like that church. I think we should make decisions. Again, no shame, no blaming. I'm not doing what I'm talking about. I'm just saying I think we should make decisions about going to church by what the Holy Spirit says to us and what he wants us to do. Like, I, Let me just say this really quick. I'm getting a little bit off-tangent off, off here. I, if you know me, I do this every Sunday, so I don't even need to say that. But I think, you know, that it's important that we talk about infringement of rights, right? Is there infringement of rights in our society today? Uh, yes, of course, right? If, if you deny that, you deny reality. So, but here's the problem. Our culture is so, in a therapeutic age, is so obsessed with their rights, they have forgotten the other side of the equation, which is responsibility, and so we have a one-sided yeah. seat, like like. Have you ever been on a seesaw? Yeah. Right, and the seesaw is like this, right? And I, I forget the seesaw. I didn't even know where I was going with that, um, but you know where I was going with it. I have seven kids. I'm tired, guys. So skip the metaphor. We have an unbalanced national discourse. We only, which we should focus on the infringement of rights, but we only focus on that at the expense of focusing on our responsibility. And again, a lot of that is rooted in what we're talking about, how we build community around what we're against. So why do we do this? Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy. It's because it's easier. It's easier to gossip. It's easier to, um, to not take responsibility For oneself, it's easier to 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 project your loathing and your sin on a scapegoat than it is to be vulnerable. Our default human condition is, man, I don't want to be the scapegoat, so I'm going to make sure someone else is a scapegoat. So I'm going to take all my tensions, all my sin, and I'm just going to ah be a conduit and destroy someone else. I'll tell you what, as a community that is structured around Jesus, we will not be a people that will destroy other people. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you believe or don't believe. I don't care if you think we're the worst church in the world and you want to be our enemy. We will love you and we will serve you. And we will practice generosity until kingdom come. So God makes this world a brand new world. Now, what I'm not saying, and I think I need to address this, because some of you, I know you're thinking this, and I know this church, I think, pretty well. Some of you I don't know as well, because I've been out of it for seven months, but um, I think it's important that I address this, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but what I'm not saying is that we can't be against stuff. Of course, we can be against stuff. Of course, we will speak truth to power. In fact, my wife mentioned it beautifully last week, Matthew chapter 18, 5 and 6. Jesus said, if you harm a little child, he's being hyperbolic, but what what does he say? He says, I'm going to take a millstone. And you know what a millstone is? It's a big block of something stone, which weighs about 2000 pounds. And he says, I'm going to put it around your neck. We think Jesus is like so weak and mild. No, Jesus says, I'm going to take a 2,000 chunk of stone, I'm going to wrap it around your neck, and I'm not going to throw you just into the ocean. I'm going to throw you into the deepest part of the ocean. In other words, Jesus, weak and mild, says, if you harm a little one, I'm going to drown you. What? Is Jesus good yes absolutely but Jesus will address the cosmic powers that graffiti our planet Jesus will address the wicked powers that will bring harm and ruination to the least and the vulnerable you can't just put Jesus in a nice easy box I'm tired of it We cannot put Jesus in a nice little label, this is who he is, and whatever. Jesus will never fit into our box or our definitions of of reality or our paradigms of reality. Jesus just exceeds every expectation of ours. In addition to that, the highest virtue in our therapeutic age. Anyone want to take a guess? What do you think it is? What's the highest virtue you think? Come on, talk to me, somebody. What do you think the highest virtue right now is? Happiness. That's a good one. What else? Love. Yes, self-love, I would say. Be true to yourself, right? The authentic movement. Good. Man, you guys have been, you've been listening to me. Come on. Anyone else? Tolerance. Faith. Yes, all of those. That's that's great. I just like to make the argument, I think the highest or chief virtue of our therapeutic age is non-judgmentalism. And there's a circular logic to this, and please don't judge me while I define this. But the circular logic of non-judgmentalism in our therapeutic age is this. If you don't affirm and accept everything as equally valid, we will judge you. So we're not going to judge you, but we're going to judge you. We're not going to judge anything, but we're going to judge you. Right? Um, But here's the problem. Sociologists will tell you that every... How many humans do we have here today? Okay, four of you? All right. Sociologist tells us that we make ad hoc moral judgments at least a thousand times about each other per day, probably even more. Like right now, you have made ad hoc moral judgments about me, and I just want to thank you for all the affirmation. I feel all the love today. I feel it, right? But that's who we are. We By definition, make judgment calls. In fact, if you go to the book of Proverbs, if you want to live the wisdom life in God's world, you have to make good decisions. You have to know what is right. You have to know what is beautiful. You have to know what God's will is. And what's packed into that is your ability to make judgment calls about what is right and what isn't. What is good and what isn't. And people ad nauseum for the last 20 years on TV especially will always cite the teaching of Jesus to not judge when they're trying to defend something that Jesus actually condemns. And I'm like, homie goes, what? You know know what I mean? So when Jesus said in his teaching, do not judge, he did not mean that we can't judge. What he means is, yes, make good judgments that reflect the heart of God. But in doing so, Never treat one person, even if they're your enemy, with shame and contempt. Ever. Calling somebody out because they don't agree with you is not the way of Jesus. Censoring someone or not having a conversation with somebody because you don't agree with them and you think they're crazy is not acceptable in the kingdom of God of Jesus. It's not. Because everything runs through love. Finally, as I, that was a long tangent, get back to scapegoating. The reason why we scapegoat is because it's easier. And one of the reasons why it's easier is because we do not have to address what's inside of us. I honestly think this is why we live busy lives. I think this is why we live a hurried culture. Yeah. This is why I, we hustle. And we go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. You know why? Because I don't think we want to address ourselves. Right, right. A busy culture is a busy, busy culture. Not because it's the case that we have so much to do that we can't open our lives up to Jesus. Rather, it's the case, I believe, that we are terrified of the pain and the sin which lies underneath the surface of our lives. Thus, we close up to Jesus. As one pastor suggests, scapegoating says more about us than it does anybody else. It reveals your heart, your failures, your longings, your insecurities, your rage, your sin. Now, is there a difference between scapegoating and speaking the truth in love? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just don't think most of us have mastered speaking the truth in love. I think most of us have mastered the mechanism of scapegoating. I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm talking to church people. I, I have a Facebook page that I never post and I never respond to anybody, but I watch you guys. <laughs> that, was, that was a little creepy. <laughs> As I said, I'm like, my wife was like, What? I, man, some of the stuff we do, I'm like, Lord have mercy. Why do we scapegoat? Well, as one French essayist said this if our thoughts should become public facts and laid bare before the law, we would all face the death penalty at least 10 times over. Joel King, about 40 times, but who's counting? In other words, oh. It's true. No, I, I love Joel. Sin is cut. In other words, sin is cut through the whole of our existence. St. Augustine said this. I carried inside of me. He's talking about the real state of our soul. Like everyone comes in pretty and nice and you dress nice and you have a, most of you have a smile. Some of you, I, I see all of you. Some of you don't. Please smile. But most of us, we, we carry a, like we, we carry not our true self, right? Right. But inside of us, I think St. Augustine captures it well by saying, He carried inside of himself a cut and bleeding soul, and how to get rid of it, I didn't know. I sought every pleasure, the countryside, sports, fooling around, the peace of a garden, my friends, good company, sex, reading. My soul floundered in the void and came back upon me. For where could my heart flee from, from my heart? Where could I escape from myself? One spiritual writer said this, In this life, all sympathies remain unfinished. Our deep longings are never really satisfied. What this means, among other things, is that we are not restful creatures who sometimes get restless, we're not fulfilled people who sometimes get dissatisfied. We're not serene people who sometimes experience disquiet. Rather, we are restless people who occasionally find rest. We're dissatisfied people who occasionally find fulfillment and disquieted people who occasionally find serenity. We do not naturally default into rest, satisfaction, and quiet, but into their opposite. Why? I'm going to use a word that we haven't used since 1989. In August, I remember. It's called sin. Sin. Like the the Latin word for it basically is homo incurvatus. in se. Humans curved in on themselves. Sin. A failure to be who God has called us to be. This is very Kafka-esque. Don't worry about that. This is basically what Kafka would say about our world. We live in a world that doesn't believe in sin, doesn't believe in judgment, but knows that there is something fundamentally wrong inside themselves. So, how do they bring release? How do you release something that you don't know what's wrong inside of you? You find a scapegoat. Thank you. You find a scapegoat. That is the human condition that Jesus came to rescue us from. Let me just say this we need rescued. We need rescued from this restlessness and let me just say this really quick sin by definition is taking a good thing and misdirecting it like i used to do this all the time with taco bell (laughs) why are you laughing no i remember bachelor when i was a bachelor i would two o'clock in the morning i would we used to we used to have halo parties back then back then we didn't have the technology that we had today so we i get all my homies and they come over to my house, and we connect all our TVs. Yeah. And then we would play Halo all night. At 2 o'clock, I have a craving, because I would see it on a commercial for Taco Bell. Right? Yeah. Burritos are amazing. Can I get an amen? amen? Mexican food is my favorite food in the world. And everyone who... Come on. And everyone amen. said amen. But going to Taco Bell at 2 o'clock in the morning for a straight month is going to destroy your body. And I don't even need to get into details. Can I get an amen to that? It will it will destroy you, right? That is a picture of sin. We do this with sex. You, you didn't invent, invent sex. This is not a, just a biological thing. It's not a social construct thing. We didn't invent power and, and influence and achievement and all that stuff. Those things are good things. They're a gift from our creator, God, who is radically good. The problem is, is that we take those good things and we misdirect them for our own ends. And we need to be rescued from that. So how does this relate really quick to John's prologue? Really quick. And I got to go through this uh, fast. We find uh, that Jesus is the word, the Logos. In other words, without getting technical, Jesus is full deity in essence. He's just as much God as God the Father. Right. And this is important for us to, and I'll say it this way, this is the key to building community. The key to building community is found in who Jesus is. Yes. So Jesus is as much as God as God the Father, right? Uh, he's, he's not some cipher, Um, And it's important that we get the right Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why we don't love well is because we have the wrong Jesus. One spiritual writer said, the reason why we have so much sin in this world is because we do not believe God loves us. So my question is, do we have as a community the right Jesus? Or do you, in your own mind, have a portrait of the right Jesus? Jesus is not a cipher. He's not a strange, silhouetted, Christ-haunted figure. He's not some heavenly, like, gaseous blob substance. Uh, it's funny, over the last hundred years, so many different scholars have come up with these weird portraits of, or bizarre portraits of Jesus. Like uh, He's a wandering cynic. Some have said he's a Jewish philosopher who just, you know, he just taught about the kingdom, kind of a country bumpkin. And uh, he used homespun language about the kingdom of God. Some have come up with a hypothesis that Jesus was a pale Galilean um, revolutionary Um, Some said he was a prophetic genius. Others have called him like a wisdom teacher, really bougie, has a nice beard. He's a proto-Marxist. He's he's anti-imperialistic. And, of course, he's a vegan or maybe he's a pegan. We don't know. In other words, he's a Californian. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. All right. Some have come up that Jesus is a hypercapitalist or whatever. I mean, we've come up with so many different portraits of Jesus. I'm sorry, he's none of those. He is the Word made flesh. Verse 14 through 18, and I'm sorry I have to get through this. It says that the Father has made him known. In other words, it literally means the Father has exegeted him. That's my favorite preacher word, which simply means in Jesus we have seen the face of God. Which is to say, John is saying that you can't take your definitions of God and squeeze Jesus into those definitions. You have to take what you see in Jesus and take your definitions of God and submit them to what you see in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. In fact, one scholar says we've been invited to see in these first few verses in John's prologue the entire drama of creation from planets and mountains, uh, the far reaches of cosmic space, to the tiniest creature, to the sick, to the child, to the most vulnerable, and even to the most powerful. And we begin to realize that all are loved by God himself. It says that Jesus tabernacled among us, and he was full of what? Grace and the Hebrew equivalent of that, he was full of hesed and emet. How many of you know what the most quotable verse in the Bible, by the Bible is? Any takers? Not even close. Trick question, right? No. It's Exodus, by the Bible. By the Bible, the most quoted verse by the Bible is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, it's all about the nature of God. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness that is said after the people of Israel decided to throw a party and to worship an idol a golden calf and decided and we're just going to keep this PG decided to get naked and do bad things golden calf worshippers God is saying I still love them I still love the unlovable that is the backdrop of full of grace and truth Full of grace and truth. Full of mercy and love for the most unlovable. Verse 14 says that he tabernacled among us. Can you just give me just a couple more minutes and I'm almost done? I'm talking fast because I know we, we, we don't have a whole lot of time here. He tabernacled among us or he dwelt among us. This is God's dream for creation. The Bible tells us that creation is a cosmic temple. And God's dream is to flood it with his healing presence. The tabernacle in the ancient world, it's as simple, it was a place where heaven and earth joined up, where God's space entered into our space. It was a microcosmos or a little cosmos that represented all of creation. God built this tabernacle because he wanted to come to his people. He wanted to meet with his people. He wanted to love his people. He wanted to cleanse his people. He wanted to remove the pollution from his people. He wanted to be with his people. He wanted to walk with his people. The problem in our Western world is this misconception about Christianity. It's, it's all about how we go to God, right? How we climb a ladder so we can get to God somehow. And it's packed in, de- in a dense way in this kind of going to heaven narrative. And that's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is says the opposite. It's all about how God, not you or I got to him, but how God came to us. He came in the middle of our sorrow and our restlessness, came into the unsympathetic reality of our lives, our sin, our pain, and our shame. And he absorbed it and broke the power of sin. Quickly, this is the reason why I'm not a Buddhist, and I respectfully say this. If you're a Buddhist here today, I respectfully say this. But Buddhism conceives life in terms of pure tragedy. The Bible does not see life as pure tragedy. The Bible sees, yes, there are tragic parts that we find in God's creation and in his world, but that's not the entire story. Can I get an amen? Amen. We know the story is much bigger, much larger than tragedy. It's rooted in victory. One scholar who I respect said this a long time ago. He said he he entered many Buddhist temples in different places and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, this is what he said, I had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned and said to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated. Limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. And then John says, as I close, behold, we know the face of God is the face of Jesus. And then John twice says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What is that? That's the scapegoat lamb. Biblically speaking, scapegoating is an act to rid oneself of pollution and sin. And you find this act fleshed out in Leviticus chapter 16, which is the high point of of, of the Jewish festival. This communal event was called what? Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. And at the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats cast lots, choose one, and then pray all the tensions, all the ridicule, all the sin, all the judgments, all the stuff onto that scapegoat. Then drape it with a purple robe, put a crown of thorns, and send it into the wilderness. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus was draped in a purple robe. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He went to the cross for you and I and absorbed our sin. In fact, I love what one scholar said, the death of Jesus on the cross reveals the lengths of which God will go to rescue his creation. In fact, he goes to the very bottom, to the darkest and deepest place of ruin and has planted a sign that says rescued. It is a sign of love, the love of creator for his ruined creation. Jesus in John decided to have a best friend named Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus wept bitterly over him. God didn't have to do that. Weeps over his best friend's death and then brings him back to life. Jesus, we find in John, is exhausted and fatigued. We find in the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that man, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane experienced extraordinary pain, most likely panic to the point of sweating drops of blood. This is the extent of which creator God as an act of astonishing love takes responsibility for you and I and our sin and our pain and our sorrow and our sickness. In fact, Jesus goes around acting like a new tab, like a new tabernacle temple figure. And what does he do? He heals the sick. My question is, where does that sickness go? I think it goes right into Jesus's body. I think what Jesus is doing, he's acting like a water purifier, going around absorbing the pain, the resentment, the sin, the shame, the heartache, the sorrow, the misery, the anxiety, the depression. And then what does Jesus give back? He does not give back hate. He does not give back destruction. He gives back life. As I close, one scholar said this, in looking at his death, Christians understood this. Jesus took in hatred on the cross and he held it, transformed it, and gave back love. He took in bitterness, held it, transformed it, and gave back graciousness. He took in curses, held them, transformed them, and gave back blessings. He took in murder, held it, transformed it, and gave back forgiveness. Jesus resisted the instinct to give back in kind, hatred for hatred, curses for curses, jealousy for jealousy, murder for murder. He held and transformed these things rather than simply retransmitting them. He took away the sins of the world by absorbing them. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. My challenge as I end here today is what kind of people are we going to be? Because what kind of people we're going to be is intimately related to who Jesus is. Jesus does not give back in kind. Jesus doesn't hate on people who hate on people because that's still hating on people. What? What? Jesus does not give back in kind. He absorbs it, takes it in, transforms it, and gives back life. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a conduit where we just let all the toxins and the pollutions in our life out? Wherein we destroy people, marriages, family, or children? Or are we going to be like Jesus? Well, some of you are thinking, well, that's just what Jesus did for me. The problem, I think, with American Christianity is that we've divorced what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus wants to do through us. Yes, I am not saying that you and I can now function like the Son of God and we're unique and, and we're going to do exactly what Jesus did. What Jesus did was a one-off event. What Jesus did, only Jesus could do. But Jesus is inviting us into this drama of participating with him wherein we become water purifiers instead of conduits. Loving, serving. Picking up our crosses. Giving our lives away generously. So my challenge, this is a challenge Sunday. Next week I'm going to get really practical. Please come back. Please come back next week. I'm going to get practical and talk about how we can do this. I'm going to talk about the 5 to 1 ratio. It will change your marriage. It will change your family. I'm going to talk about what we should do and how we can specifically do this as it relates to a culture of contempt. But this week is a challenge. This week, what I want you to do is I want you to behold. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I had... For nine months, I had to do that. I was, I was a non-functional human. I couldn't do anything but behold the Lamb of God who took away my pain. I can't tell you the pain and the agony and the anxiety that I felt in my life, but I had to keep on. And thank God, my wife's a full charismatic. So I keep on looking. Keep on looking to Jesus. I had to keep on looking at Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you're the one who absorbs everything that I'm going through. And every time I look to Jesus... didn't always happen the way I wanted it to happen, but every time Jesus came through and was faithful to me. Our challenge this week is twofold. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Focus on him. Get away. Step out of the traffic. Pray, and as you pray, think about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As you step out of the traffic, as you read your Bible, get away and think about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take some time and just think about and worship around You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when that starts to get inside of you, then we can start talking about justice. Then we can start talking about other things, but we can't talk about justice because justice is basically God's love acted out in public which I'm ripping off one author who I totally disagree with, but he ripped off the Bible, so I'm just going with the Bible, right? Love is God's justice acted out in public. So if we don't know how to love well, I'm sorry, forget about justice. And I'm gonna go hard on this next week. We are called to love we are called not to return in kind. We are called to take in the pollutions and the toxins of this world and to give fresh water to a people that is thirsty and in need of salvation. And please hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you're in an abusive relationship, take it. No, that's not what I'm saying. You, you understand what I'm saying? We're not going to be, we're not extreme, right? Someone's beating you up. You need to get out of that relationship. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is this normal daily relationship with our family members, with our coworkers, with our enemies, right? What are we called to do? We're called to love. That's our response. Close your eyes, bow, bow your heads. Father, I thank you that we would be this kind of community that will love like this. Lord, teach us how to do this. We can't do this without you. And I thank you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes. You would strengthen us and you would teach us to give our lives away. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, let that become our defining reality. Help us this week to focus on that. Lord, let that become... I don't, I don't even know how to say this. I don't even know how to pray this. Just let it get inside of us this week. And as we learn how much you love us in this world, and this community, I thank you that's when we can begin to love like you. So I pray your blessing on every son and daughter here today. I thank you that you would fill them up with your grace and with your truth. In your name we praise. Your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed. You would say, Chris... Um, I got a lot of pollution and toxins in my life. I need Jesus. I need what you're talking about. Bible calls it salvation. Salvation is basically rescue. You need rescued. You need Jesus. You're sick of what's happening in this world. You're sick of what's happening in your own life. And you want to open your heart this morning and say, Jesus, could you take over? Could you cleanse me? Could you make me whole? It's so your eyes are closed, your heads about? bowed. If that's you, I'd like you to pray with me. It's just really simple. I just It's a really simple prayer that I want you to pray. But if you say, yes, I want Jesus in my life. On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. One, two, three. Anyone like that? Raise your hand. Thank you. 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 I see all those hands. I see all those hands. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can put your hands down. Yo. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.